Well, good morning, church family. Uh, David, thank you for your songs and your leading of those worship songs for us this morning. And I haven't sang How Beautiful in such a long time. And it, whew, emotionally, that song got all over me in a good way. And I said to my wife during communion, I said, man, I must be emotional or something. And she said, how about you give credit to the Holy Spirit? And I was like, all right, we will do that. Well, I got to admit this morning, um, as we get started, that it has finally happened. And I'm probably embarrassingly late to actually admit it. But what I'll admit to you today is that I have lost touch with this generation of teenagers' vernacular. Anybody with me? If you don't know what the word vernacular means, I have lost touch with their language, right? Gen Z has totally, totally gone way beyond my ability to understand what they're saying. 15 years ago when I was a youth minister, I could keep up with the word tight. I never said it. I knew it meant cool, but I would not say it out of just principle, because tight to me meant like my belt, right? But for them, it meant cool. But now, it has gone totally beyond anything I understand. For example, and I'm going to embarrass my boys as I go through these, I still use the word flirt. To flirt with somebody is to, you know, kind of try to start a relationship with them. Gen Z uses the word riz, right? And if you're good at Riz, you are the Wizard of Oz, okay? I don't know what that word means, but apparently, I guess, uh, I've heard that some of our boys have some Riz, one of them not here today, Mr. Burris, but anyway. Um, when I think of the word cap, there's this word cap, C-A-P, I think of something you put on your head, Right? or a button on a keyboard, all caps. But cap today, and I looked this one up this morning, it means lie. If somebody's capping, they're lying. Or no cap is, they're not lying. Why? I have no idea. I thought it meant, I was using the word, I was trying to kind of give my kids a hard time, and I was like, no cap. I thought that meant like there was no limit to it. No cap. <laughs> like no limit. Right. Or how about the word, and we all know this one, bruh. A word I've heard so many times in the past three years, I cannot even count. I had no context for any prior meaning to the word bruh. It, had, it meant nothing to me. But apparently to Gen Z, you guys, it can mean hey, hello, dad, mom, hey you, and much more. Just bruh, right? And probably much more than that. Am I off? I have no idea. Probably just butchered that. But I bring all this up this morning for this reason. We are in between our Old Testament and New Testament in our walk through the story. And so we have given ourselves two weeks, this week, and then next week we will launch into chapter 22 of the story. We're encouraging everybody to read. If you don't have a story Bible, this morning if you're one of our new guests, pick one of those up in the foyer. I wanna make sure we get you one. We've got a few more of those out there. But in the in-between for today, we're gonna work on this idea that we all know. And that is, when it comes to Gen Z, or anytime, context matters. Because words only have meaning in a given context. Now you know this, but I think it's good to just remind ourselves of this. That words mean nothing in isolation. Your use of words, my use of words, who you use them with gives those words meaning. 
Words and definitions matter, but they have zero meaning inside a vacuum. So as we transition today from Old Testament to New Testament, and as we look forward to next week's story of Jesus's birth, what we're going to do today is set the stage. What we're gonna do is set the context. Take us out of a vacuum of in between the promises. That's what Testament means, old promise, new promise. And we're gonna set a context so that we can understand the world that Jesus walks into. Because between the world of the Old Testament that ends in the text with Ezra, Nehemiah, Second Chronicles, Malachi, and the opening of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John is 400 years that is probably titled somewhere in your Bible, the 400 years of silence. But that 400 years is really not silent because something happened in those moments. In those centuries, there was context set and there was worlds being built and there was culture being built. And as we just read in Galatians 4, Paul says that was the right time, or actually he says the perfect time for Jesus to come. So what we're going to do is look at this time in which the Jewish people are entering a new era of their story. And we're going to be able to look at how God used this era to prepare for the way of the Lord, the way of Jesus. It's an era that's highlighted by some big moments. And I want to just, you see these up on the screen. I'll just mention a few. Of course, the people returned from Jerusalem around 538 BC. A huge event happened in the world around 332 BC with Alexander the Great conquering Palestine, conquering most of the known world. From that time of, after that, 198 to 167 BC, there was oppression of the Jewish people by a, a dynasty called the Seleucids. They had kings uh, that were pretty rough on the Jewish people, Antiochus Epiphanes III and IV. Uh, the Roman conquest came after the Maccabean revolt. The Maccabeans held a little bit of power for just a little bit, restored some authority of the Jewish people to the temple, but then Rome came along and their influence came along in 63 BC and they conquered Israel and the surrounding area. 37 BC, Herod is born. The time of the Herods starts. Actually, he starts as king in 37 BC. I apologize there. And then around 6 BC to 4 BC, as best we can tell, Jesus is born. But more than just a time of historical events, and probably more important for us, what happens during this 400 years of intertestamental time is that there's groups of people that develop in Israel who have one concern on their heart. And there's five major groups that come back from exile. And the one question that's driving the way that they think and the way that they build their culture and the way that they worship God and the way that they perform their religious rites is how can we prevent exile from ever happening again? And it's not crucial, it's not critical to our salvation, but it is important that we understand these groups of people. So we're gonna use some props and we're gonna use some volunteers here this morning. So my five volunteers, if y'all come up, if, I, uh, if you guys would come on up, we've got Anderson, if you'll stand over here, Nathan right here, Connor, somewhere in the middle, Ryan over here, and then Coleman, if you'll stand 
on that end. And don't get your props yet. I'll give them to you. All right. You're jumping ahead of yourself. All right. So let's understand these five groups represented by our five teens. Teens are great for coming up here. Adults always tell me no. And, and teens, they're sitting on the front. And I'm like, will you come up front? And they're like, sure. So they're al allowed to do this. But let's start with our first group represented here by Anderson. And these are a group you hear in the Bible known as the Herodians. The Herodians are very cultured people. They rise up around the time of Alexander the Great. This is a toga. And they accept much of the culture of the Greek world. <laughs> they are hip. They are cool. They wear the most modern fashions. They live things out. And what they are is Jewish men and women who live in the in-between. They're not strictly in their identity Jewish, but they have given up that strict identity to match the Hellenist, Hellenistic culture of the day. Hellenism was known for around the Greek world by healthcare, um, uh, strong armies, um, and a couple other things like games and Colosseums. And Alexander the Great conquered the world with that. And the Herodians are those that live by that kind of culture. They are known as Herodians because they, in their support of how to answer the question, how do we not go back to exile? Is they say, we compromise. We become like the culture, and most like the culture is Herod the Great in his dynasty. So that's group number one. We'll talk more about the Herodians here in a minute. Group number two is what you hear of is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a priestly order who run the temple. They trace their lineage all the way back to the time of King Solomon and the high priest Zadok. Now, here's where we're going to address these guys. They don't look like, they, they would have worn priestly gear. But for us to remember these guys... Oops, I've got that on backwards. We don't want to have your tie on backwards. Okay. There we go. But these guys, they are powerful. They are wealthy. They're influential. And they not only are wealthy and influential, but they run what is known as the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruling authorities of the Jewish people. They're responsible for everything that happens. Sorry, Brandon, I just clicked off of the, uh, the slide. They are responsible for everything that happens in the religious activities at the temple. But the reason he's dressed like this is because this group of people and their wealth is by the time Jesus is born, they run the temple like the mafia. Okay? This is how they run it. They are, they are bent. Right? I'm going to move, right? They are ready. <laughs> They are bent on making sure they, they, they hold on to power and their authority. That's the Sadducees. Of course, the third one's probably the one we're most familiar with. These are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are descendants of what's called Hasidic or Hasidim Jews who were freedom fighters in between this 400 years between the Testaments. The Pharisees rise up during the Maccabean era. But after the Maccabean era, the way they answer the question, how do we prevent exile? How do we prevent being conquered? Is they answer the question, is it's all about the text. So the Pharisees, 
although this isn't an official prayer shawl. They are all about devotion. I'm going to do this to you. <laughs> all right. And they love the text. And here's my 25-pound Bible. All right. Ugh. All right. They love the text. They're all about it. And they study the text. Their answer to how do we prevent it, we need to be faithful to the text to prevent being conquered. They believe that God's one desire is to keep the law. Let's keep the law. They're responsible for what comes about to be known as the synagogue, and they're responsible for the rabbinical schools, and they are centered. There's about 6,000 of them, men and women, husbands and wives, and they are centered in Galilee, where Jesus grows up. Our fourth group is what's known as the Essenes. So we've got these three groups. These are all mentioned in the text. The Essenes, though, are not mentioned in the text. The Essenes are people who come out of this same idea of the Pharisees, but don't want to even be part of the culture. This is a group of people who are so far removed that they move out to the Dead Sea area and they are nonconformist. They're a movement who began around the time of the Pharisees, but they decide let's just not even be anywhere near the text. What they do is they study Torah like this, but they also are responsible for writing down a lot of Torah. So they love scrolls. And to remember them, they live by the Dead Sea. Salt, okay? So that's what they're doing out there. These people are super dedicated to not only text, but writing the text and to practicing baptism. They would baptize themselves daily in mikvahs if they were some of the scribes that were writing the text. We know them primarily from the discovery, the greatest probably archaeological discovery ever made in 1947 in Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is that group, and they are around at the time of Jesus. They're mentioned in the text, not directly, but you see their influence on the text, especially with John the Baptist. And then finally, we have this last group, and they are the Zealots. The Zealots start in 6 AD because they're sick of the Romans telling them to go somewhere and be counted. And so the Zealots kind of become bandits, All right, sorry. And the zealots are known for being terrorists, <laughs> which fits with Coleman. All right. <laughs> These zealots, they don't pay taxes. They hate the Romans. And what they are is they're connected to the Pharisees. They're religiously connected to the Pharisees. But they believe the Pharisees didn't go far enough. They believe the text allowed them to become criminals and they love to assassinate Romans. They're known for going through crowds and using this small little knives and daggers. Ascaris is what they're called. Ascaris, Judas Ascari, right? And going through the crowd and pulling out that dagger and maybe stabbing a Roman official and then just walking away. They were good at it. They were highly trained, but they practiced terrorism and assassination. Now, we're going to give these guys a phrase, and each of you will say the phrase that's on the screen. Can you see the screen, cool man? All right. All right. But I want us to remember these groups. And I know that this is a little bit of a different teaching this morning, 
But I want us to remember these because this sets the phrase. And you can remember these groups by a couple things. First of all, back to the Herodians. The Herodians, again, partner with corrupt government officials to keep power, wealth, and prestige. The New Testament character that's probably most Herodian is Matthew. And you can remember him by this saying. Make Israel great again. Make Israel great again. They believe the way to make Israel great is is let's partner and let's co-opt ourselves with corrupt government officials so that we can get our way. The, the Sadducees, again, they're a wealthy ruling class. They'll do anything to keep in power. The New Testament character that we know for sure, Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. And their phrase that you can remember them by? We'll make you an offer you can't. That's right. <laughs> they're the mafia, right? They're responsible for killing Jesus because they want to make sure and keep power. The Pharisees, these are these Bible scholars and rabbis learning the text. Their New Testament character that you could probably most relate them to, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They grew up in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is a city in which we see all the rabbinical training happening in one town. That was the center of it. And their phrase would be this. It's all about it. The law, the law, it's all about the law. The scenes, scribes dedicated to copying the text. New Testament character, John the Baptist. And they don't say it like us. We would say not in the, not, we would say not in the world, but of the world. They would say. Neither in the world. Uh, neither in the world or of the world. They are escapists. They are out. And then finally, the zealots. The zealots, small, probably the smallest of groups, but highly trained assassins. It's incredible to me that out of the zealots, you have two disciples probably. Simon the zealot, we know that for sure, that's what he's called. And then Judas, Iscariot, either himself or his dad, the Iscariot, which means assassin, is part of the discipleship. And their phrase, Coleman? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Now, you guys hang out for just a little bit. Now, I know that some of us, maybe this is a little different, and I wasn't trying to insult anybody with some of these phrases. I think it's just easy for us to understand this. Now, these groups, what these groups do is they form a major influential groups of the New Testament. Okay? Major influential group of the New Testament. Jesus here doesn't just walk onto a blank canvas. But he walks into a real world with real problems and people trying to live out real lives. And I want you to see this at work. If y'all will hang out on stage just for a little bit because you want to see this interplay. I want you to see just a second, just real briefly, out of Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bible, grab that. And you can see here in Mark chapter 12 how these groups, specifically two of them, the Herodians and the Pharisees, are working in the background. And what we're going to do is work on this trap that they set. And I hope you guys, just with this little, quick little character sketch we've given of them, you will be able to see this is how this operates. And you'll also get to have an aha moment with what Jesus does with these groups. So let's jump into Mark chapter 12. So later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians, okay? to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said, 
Now notice what they're trying to do. This is a trap. They said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him a coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, near the end of Mark's gospel, you have interactions. And in the gospels, you have three different interactions near the last week of Jesus's life. Three interactions that are all traps. And in this one, you have an interaction involving two groups, Herodians and Pharisees, which is odd, right? Should Herodians and Pharisees be getting along? No. Pharisees, you, big Bible girl, all right? Pharisees thought Herodians had lost their way. In fact, they despised them. Herodians thought that Pharisees were just Bible nerds. They didn't want anything to do with them either. But here they come together. The Pharisees see Rome as a pollution to what God wants. The Herodians thought, well, as long as we get along with Rome, we'll be okay. But the enemy of my enemy is what? My friend. And so these two groups come trying to trap Jesus. And the trap is set this way. I want you all to really lean in here. This is so interesting. The Pharisees' trap is set around what? The law, the law, it's all about the law. They are trying to trap Jesus in a law trap that if he uses a coin stamped with the image of Caesar, then he is bearing a false image. He is carrying an idol. They refuse to pay this tax. That or they would never take that money and switch it out for local Jewish money. So they're trying to get him set around a trap being guilty of breaking Torah, God's law. The Herodian trap, on the other hand, Mr. Toga over here, is set in an equal but opposite way. It's not set around God's law, but the Herodians, because they love the culture and they love Herod, and by this time Herod Antipas, is set around if Jesus doesn't pay the tax, he's guilty of breaking Caesar and Herod's law, and he's, he can be arrested. So you see the traps? One on God's law and one on man's law. It's quite a trap. But Jesus here in the text, and I leave it on the screen for y'all, exposes their mistake. And this is why context matters. The context of what's going on behind the scenes gives us insight to what's going on. Because when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God's to what is God's, he is exhibiting pure genius. The mistake that's being made of the Herodians and the Pharisees, and dare we say even sometimes us today, is that they are valuing the things of God and the things of Herod and Caesar as equal. That's what they're doing. The things of God and the things of Herod and the things of Caesar are equal. And what 
Jesus is doing is saying that's not true. That's why it's genius to say, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Because the thing of Caesar, give him your daily coin. It was one day's wages, a denarius, once a year. Give it to him. Who cares? Let Caesar build his roads and have an army and whatever. But don't you ever dare give, to give away what is God's. Your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, your allegiance. Give him your whole self. And in that, he undoes their trap. He says, don't ever think those are equal because what belongs to God is here in value and what belongs to Caesar is way down here. You see that? And the context helps us to see that the Herodians and the Pharisees were both making the same mistake. They were both valuing their position high as if not higher than God's. Let's give them a round of applause. Y'all can go sit down. Appreciate you guys. We're gonna wrap up. I wanna go back to Galatians 4 as we wrap up this morning. And thank you guys so much for helping out. I know that was a long time on stage. And I want us to understand this though. Because I think this is what we learn in between. And as we get ready to get into the new promise, the new covenant, the fulfilled promise, I don't really like the word new because that sounds like it's brand new or it's, it has nothing to do with the old one. That's not true textually. So let's just call it the, the fulfilled covenant of Jesus that's coming. We hear in Galatians 4.4 that Kelly read earlier that God sent Jesus at just the right time. What that means is that all the pieces were on, on the table. All the pieces were in place. At the right time, Jesus showed up and it couldn't have been more perfect for him than when he did. And it's out of this context where these groups that God decided in his wisdom and his perfection that he would show up and he would display the kingdom of God and display a new humanity that would become the body of Christ that we call the church. And that's the story you're entering this week as you read chapter 22. But what I want to remind us of most today is that if Jesus sent or was sent at the right perfect time to display his goodness, to display the kingdom for the world, then we have also got to trust that God has us in our context at just the right time. Not that we're Jesus, but as people of Jesus and as people who are living out the kingdom, maybe God knows more than we do sometimes and he's got us exactly where he has us so that we can display his goodness as Jesus did to the world today. So that we can understand our context, so that we can understand our world and we can show the world who the Lord is. So we enter that. We enter our days with joy, with curiosity, with a deep love for God, what he wants to do in and through us now in the body of Christ. May we get our strength from him. May we dive into the text. And I love that out of every one of these groups, you can see something positive to take. You can see something negative you don't want to, right? But from Herodians, they understood the context, right? We can do that without compromising. Sadducees, they were the ones that were getting people to come to worship. 
You can do that without becoming a member of the mafia, right? (laughs) Pharisees. Jesus picks on them the most probably because he knew them the most. He grew up in their world. They knew the text. The Essenes loved God. The Zealots had a passion. Out of all that, we can see positive things. And so must we also look at our world and say, where can we point people to God? Because God has created all people. And we can display what he created them for, for Jesus. May we stand together. May we praise him. If you need anything this morning, uh, may we just follow Jesus every day and we look forward to the next 10 weeks of walking through the New Testament together. Let's stand together and sing.